So this is the uh, male exclusivity panel. Uh, we have four lovely panelists. Uh, three of them are directly working in the wine industry, and the fourth one uh, is a research associate at UC Davis. So what, what I thought I would do is introduce each of the panelists and let them tell you about themselves, how they got to where they are in their career, uh, what advice they would have for each of you uh, for dealing with male exclusivity, and then uh, let Malcolm talk about his research at UC Davis. So I think the first panelist that we were going to start with is Esther Mobley. She's the wine, spirits, and beer writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, well, hi, everyone. This is an amazing turnout, and it's, it's cool to see everyone's faces. Um, Sam and I were we've we've been chatting, and um, I think the the question of male exclusivity culture is a broad one, and um, one we encounter in different ways. You know, um, some of us here, some of you here, are uh, you own your own businesses, you're self-made. Sam reports to herself. Um, others of us find ourselves in much larger uh, corporate structures where. Um, it takes a lot of um, uh, savviness and kind of intuition to figure out how to navigate things, and um, things aren't really always spelled out for you, even in this world of, like, excessive HR programming. <laughs> you know, we have seminars on how to deal with your 401k plan, but not really on, like, how to interact with your coworkers or superiors. Um, my my first real job, in, I guess, um, well, I don't know. Everything's a real job. But um, my earliest, let's say, real full-time job was um, as the assistant to Tom Matthews, who's the executive editor of Wine Spectator magazine. So um, in a lot of ways, that was kind of the most traditionally female role that exists. I was answering his phone. I was greeting his guests. I was opening his mail. I was making his lunch reservations. And um, having not really had much other experience in the in a, a company of any real size, um, I think when I think back, I think of all the ways that I had been up until that point in my life, and I was 22, 23, conditioned to interact with men, especially men much older than me. I mean, my my models were like my teachers and professors, my dad and my uncles, my dad's friends, um, certainly romantic people. I mean, you know, just all the ways in which you, you kind of know to interact with people. And... I can remember like going in on Monday morning and Tom being like, how was your weekend, Esther? And I would report to him, oh, here was my weekend. And there was this sense in which I felt like I was, um, I, I learned very quickly to be like, a, oh, I don't know what it was. Was it like a daughterly role that I was, I kind of sensed would make me likable? Um, and I just think so, so much back to that and how it was so hard to break through the gender dynamics I had learned elsewhere in my life in the workplace where 
it's it's to your own detriment, I think, if you if you keep playing out those dynamics. So I think of all the ways, you know, the first time I ever went in and asked for a raise, and you go in and you're like, well, I think I I did a good job. What do you think? I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and you're you're that's the way we're conditioned. At least I should say I was. Um, you're not supposed to brag about yourself. You're not supposed to kind of sell your own achievements. You're supposed to wait for other people to praise you. Um, where actually, you will you will only set yourself back. I mean, I I wish I'd learned that sooner. That um, you have to go in and say, "Hi, uh, this is what I've done. This is how it's exceeded what you asked of me. I know this is what I deserve." give it to me. I mean, it's like, I, I, I don't know why it, I mean, I know why, but um, I wish I'd understood that sooner. Um, and I wish I'd understood that um, so few things that, that feel unnatural to us in workplaces will make anyone dislike you. So the classic example is, um, you know, women think that asking for a raise or when they're initially negotiating, I know we're not going to talk too much about negotiation because I know that's coming later. Um, you somehow think you're gonna you're gonna seem pushy or you're gonna make someone angry. Um, the truth is, if you ask for more, the worst case scenario is you don't get it and they respect you more. I mean, uh, literally, people will only have more respect for you if you you know, just make demands for yourself. Um, I don't know why that was so hard for me to understand. Um, and in my current role uh, at the Chronicle, I report to female bosses. And to be quite honest, that was a major factor in me wanting to take the job. I saw that the woman above me was, my the boss above me was a woman, the boss above her was a woman, and um, I got such a great vibe from them. And when I was um, when I was being hired at the Chronicle and I was negotiating my salary, uh, the editor in chief complimented me. She was like, "I love that you're asking for more. This is great." And I was like, "I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> you're supposed to push back." But she was like, "I." It, she she just said, um, "So seldom do women actually ask for more. It makes me really happy that you are." And um, that helped me know I was going into a really supportive work environment um, where people had my interests in mind and where I was going to actually uh, learn more about how to negotiate these workplace things. So, uh, you know, I, I guess part of what I'm saying here, and this is just my own experience, is I think I'm still learning how to unlearn the ways in which I've, I, I was kind of taught, conditioned to be a woman in the real world um, in order to help myself advance professionally. Um, and I, I think it's easy to, to talk about things like, oh, women in the workplace who ask for more become bossy, as Linda was saying. Um, but I, I actually think when we, when we sit and look at how we're checking ourselves, how we're holding ourselves back, for me at least, um, I, it's happening all the time in ways I don't even realize. Um, 
And I think we're going to hear from Valerie next. So Valerie Mastin is the Vice President of Skernick National Sales. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, it's a pretty inspiring group of accomplished women here, uh, talented, accomplished, inspiring women here. So um, I have to use my computer for notes or I'll totally go on a billion tangents. Um, but I, what, what I really hope for today um, is uh, finding small ways to shift this paradigm of implicit bias. Um, Esther first asked us on one of our conference calls, how do we define or how do we each define this male exclusivity uh, culture? And um, to me, it's, it's this normative established notion that men are better at jobs in this industry than we are. Um, and I'm in sales and marketing, and so of course there are a, a number of women in those jobs. But if you look at leadership roles, if you look at management roles, we are often really thrust onto, um, you know, onto the side. You can you can do sales, but not sure you're ready for management yet. Um, even if you had a, a years and years and years of experience, uh, and you were a really great salesperson, and I've experienced this in. Um, in interviewing other people uh, with uh, my current company, whose um, management team is all men, um, except for a few of us. And so often I'm in interviews with four or five men and me and interviewing a woman and, oh, you know, it's good, but she's not ready for a national position. She's, she's the, I think we should keep her in local sales. And, you know, you look at the resume next to a man, you take the names off and you've got a woman with clear performance history uh, and, and experience that's quantifiable. And I think I'll get to that in a second. I think it's really important um, as we promote ourselves that we, we take these metrics that we're confident in, like um, uh, uh, percentages of growth and, and numbers. I actually think those are really important things that we can be confident and stand behind and it will and help us um, you know, point to specific reasons why we're qualified for the jobs. Um, so in Georgia is where I started my career, and we have a name for the implicit bias that happens in Georgia in the wine industry. It's called a good old boy network, mm -hmm. and um, it's, it's men uh, managing men selling to men. Um, uh, I started in the early 2000s as a sales rep on-premise for a really great um, importer and distributor of fine wines. And... Um, I sold in a territory, and I actually looked over my old account list a couple uh, weeks ago. I didn't have a woman buyer out of 60 accounts. There was one restaurant in Atlanta that was owned by a woman, um, and she wasn't my account. Uh, so it was really, there was a lot of disparity there. And um, there were more and more women being hired for sales positions uh, in the local distributors, um, but my male colleagues would say things like, oh, you know, you're just doing well because you're a girl and, and those buyers buy more from you because you're a girl. So we were going up against not only, you know, a lack of, of respect uh, for our, you know, sales capabilities and our skill set, uh, but also this, this sexuality was used against us. And I think that's still happening everywhere today. Um, and the people that I see that navigate that really successfully um, you know, they can, they can use sexuality in a way that says there's a difference in gender, all right? We understand from um, what, uh, uh, what was the 
Hannah, what, what was her name? That Linda, was Linda was talking about. Thank you, Linda. That was actually that was so amazing. Um, but what Lenny was Linda was talking about, I think, you know, we play we easily play into the stereotype with the flirtation in sales. And um, the way I navigated it personally was to make a lot of accounts my friends so that I was a human being to them and not just, you know, this face that came in uh, with a, a bag of good wines. And so I was trying to um, change that, uh, that role that was being played and just be human no matter what it was. Oh, can you not hear me? Can everybody hear me? I'm sorry. Um, so... And I also had a really, really amazing mentor. Uh, so my first boss in Georgia was a woman, and she did not take any shit, bullshit like that. Um, and she's, she taught me to stand my ground and to ask for what I wanted. And so I think that was really important to, to have her back me up when I needed to go into uh, a meeting with uh, a male buyer or a male colleague or a male manager and say, you know, I'm valued here and I need this. Uh, and I think we sometimes don't want to have those conversations. They're really hard conversations to have. Um, and you kind of, you, you, your expectation level is that, um, that your performance is, is noted and seen, and therefore you will be rewarded for it. And I don't think that that's always true, and it, it, that might not even be gender uh, specific, uh, but we have to point things out and self-promote. And... Um, I, I did a lot of research, like amateur research, going into this, um, uh, specifically about self-promotion. Um, and are men better self-promoters than women? Um, a lot of research points to say, yes, men are better self-promoters because it was, uh, it, from an evolutionary standpoint, they would need to, um, to for economic and romantic su success, they would need to promote themselves. And women, from this nurturing standpoint, have a more communal um, approach to, uh, to their interactions in the community. So I think that um, it's, again, going back to this difficulty in, in self-promotion. And, uh, you know, I have a hard time, honestly, talking about myself. Um, but in, in interviews, um, in any in uh, asking for raises, being able to point to um, then having a quantifiable metric to use, I think is really really important for us. Uh, to, and I think it again gives me confidence uh, in um, asking for what I want. So I came to New York in 2010. Uh, to work for Michael Skernick Wines, and thinking, coming to the New York market, um, it's a huge market, it's absolutely sophisticated wine market, um, and was surprised uh, to go into a sales meeting in New York uh, where 32 salespeople, um, of the best salespeople in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, and only four of the people in the room in 2010 were women. Uh, there were no women in portfolio management, uh, and there were a couple women in the in a, uh, what we now call sales support, which is a customer service role. Uh, and it it was a little bit shocking to me, and um, something that I wanted to change immediately because uh, I didn't think it was reflective of the market or the talent that was um, in in New York, and and certainly even in Georgia it wasn't quite my experience at that time. Um, and there were little ways that we went about changing that. Um, I was very vocal about, about needing to find hires um, in, in New York that were women. So to bring them in uh, in 
and maybe a customer service role where we knew that we could create space, or I knew that we could create space once we got them uh, into our uh, in, into employment. Um, and I think that's a big deal. And so we, for all of you who are in, um, you know, in management or leadership positions, um, creating space is, is so important. Um, for me, now that I, I hire people, um, and my team is more women now than men, um, I have gone out and sought out women from other parts of the country that were amazing salespeople rather than be satisfied uh, with the resumes that were being brought to me by other managers in Skirtic Wines. So I think that... Um, that that is so important that the recruitment that being really conscious uh, of of seeking out the talented other women that are there and making the space for them um, and the interview process again is is been difficult. I've seen um, I've watched uh, women be very honest about their weaknesses, um, whether it be. I know a lot about um, I know a lot about American wine, but I'm not as strong in Italian wine in an interview. Or, you know, I know all about on-premise sales, but I'm not. You know, I, I I haven't I don't have that much retail sales experience. In the same interview, a man with less experience might never mention a weakness. Or, as you know, um, Sam and I were talking about this uh, in finance. It's the oh my weakness is I'm a perfectionist, or oh my weakness is. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm too ambitious. And um, unfortunately, because of that impl implicit bias uh, in the management discussions, and again, I work with a management hiring team that is five or six men and me, I listen to them and have to stop them and, and redirect the conversation to, hey, how is that actually really a weakness when all of these other experiences are that much stronger. So implicit bias uh, actually works against us when we're trying to be uh, actually really honest about our um, experiences and, and skill sets and capabilities. And I find that really, really fascinating. I do, how much time do I have? Five. <laughs> right another five minutes. Oh, okay. But we can move on and then take questions at the end. Okay. No, I, I have more. I um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, creating space is so important, um, and also uh, amplifying one another, echoing one another. It's something that um, I read about a couple years ago that uh, the o Obama um, team, tra one of the transition teams did. Uh, these women found themselves not really being heard in meetings, and so uh, we institute this in our office. We're now, there's now four women managers. Uh, we're, our, our office space, of so the portfolio managers and customer service and sales management, we're over equal, um, uh, at least equal women, um, you know, and uh, a lot of it was being really, really creative and figuring out, okay, even if there's not that sales position in a box, you know, what can we, what can we do? What do you want to do? How do you see your pathway there? Um, so let's, uh, let's find a way to get there. And it's, it's really thinking outside the paradigm of, of, you know, a traditional, um, structure of the company, and um, it's really, really fun to create new positions and then watch people succeed in those, um, but we do amplify one another. Um, we repeat each other's ideas until they're heard. I mean, I think all of us who've been in meetings know how people interrupt and can talk over one another, and I, and I found that really intensified in management meetings where I am the only woman, and 
uh, I think that having other voices and finding positive competition, um, it's with so little spaces on the rung uh, in a lot of companies, it's important that we actually collaborate uh, and find a way to uh, positively reinforce one another uh, rather than, you know, it, it, it's an easy tendency for us to, you know, gossip or cut one another down in, in ways that aren't actually productive for any of us. And so, um, you know, this is one simple way of uh, helping create the space. And there was a great piece in the New York Times uh, maybe last week, uh, and it actually opened my eyes. It was um, some research was done that if you, if women and men are uh, volunteer for these tasks in their office um, differently. So women are more likely to volunteer to throw a party or volunteer to stay late to do something. Um, and it's all these tasks that don't actually have a metric for performance. So what happens is that we we actually are viewed negatively. It can actually negatively impact uh, our career path within our company by by saying yes to everything. Uh, yes, I'll do this, yes, I'll do that. I've always thought, okay, I'm a team player. I need to see, uh, say yes, I need to be out there. But when there's no way that you can quantify the performance and be able to say something, to say somebody to somebody, look what I did, look what I've accomplished, look how I helped my company, then, you know, it's, it's actually we need to be more, um, more uh, selective about what we say yes to. Um, and so that was kind of the note I wanted to finish on because I think uh, it's, a, it's an empowerment to be able to say no, you know, no, I, I'm like my value is here. I'm more valuable with my time here. Um, and I, I hope that we can all find ways to say no more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was great. Thank you, Valerie. Um, and I think what you said about being in Georgia and having only one female wine director out of 60, mm. uh, that really leads us into our next panelist, who's Tonya Pitts. And she's the wine director and sommelier at One Market Restaurant. Thank you, everyone. Um, as I listened to everyone's story today to start off with, I was actually going to talk about the beginning for me, what I've always thought was the beginning for me. Um, in uh, a, my restaurant career and my career as a sommelier, um, I was actually working with Loretta Keller at Star's Restaurant. And when Loretta left Star's, she opened Bizou Restaurant. And I followed. Within being there within a year, Loretta pulled me aside and said, you know, this is not what you were supposed to be doing. You are supposed to be a sommelier. And no one had ever said that to me. I hadn't even thought of that as a career uh, move for me or a profession. But then I thought, how did I even fit into being in restaurants to begin with? Um, and that takes me back to 1985, my first restaurant job. Um, I was a freshman in college and had never worked in a restaurant before. Some friends said, hey, we've got this job in a restaurant. It's French, it'll be really fun. You'll meet a lot of nice people and just come hang out, make some money. Unbeknownst to me, I was going to work for a woman named Wendy who had spent 10 years in uh, Provence and had come back home to St. Louis to open her 
own restaurant. All her friends from around the country came to help her with this project over the summer, and that was the beginning for me. I had always thought that I was going to become a lawyer. That's what I was going to school for. Um, our nights would end with these amazing meals and wine. Of course, being as young as I was, I couldn't drink. So all I could do is sit there, swirl, smell, and talk about what I was smelling. And a couple of the guys and a woman took me aside and realized that I had a palate and there was something there. Still unbeknownst to me, not thinking that this was actually something viable for me to go into as a profession, I continued on. I kept that job. I worked in other restaurants, then decided that I no longer wanted to be a lawyer, ditched school as a junior at uh, St. Louis University, told my family, I don't want to do that anymore. I actually want to go to art school which is what I'd always done, I always painted. I was spending half my time in regular studies and the rest of my time in the studio painting until two, three in the morning. And with that, I decided to come to San Francisco. I talked to some friends, they said, you know, you don't belong here, you belong in San Francisco. Just let's go, let's take a trip. And so I came to San Francisco for a long weekend over a birthday. It was January, it was rainy, it was foggy, and I can remember standing on a new friend's balcony in Pacific Heights and looking over the city, and it just felt right. And I was home. I went back to St. Louis, packed everything up, and in six months, moved. Not being a resident, I couldn't go to school right away, so what do I do? I get a job in a restaurant. That first restaurant was Uni Cafe, and I met Sylvie Dar. And Sylvie was the wine director at Zuni at that time, and she took me under her wing. And I had a blast. I learned a lot. I loved wine. I knew I loved wine from when I was in St. Louis, but I still didn't realize that it was something viable for me as a woman. Not just a woman, but a woman of color. And not seeing people that looked like me, much less women. I went and I worked at Stars Restaurant with Jeremiah Tower. I was working at Stars and Zuni at the same time. Um, and there, there were women. There were women in the kitchen. But there really weren't any women in the front of the house besides being at the host stand, running the floor that way. And within that, again, you know, the guys would take you aside, something became open. We'd go, take two minutes, one minute, taste, talk about it, and run back on the floor. When Loretta left Stars, I followed her and went to Bizu. And when she and I talk about this now, I get teary and I cry because I say, thank you. Because if you'd not said that to me, I wouldn't be where I am now. And she says, no, Tonya, it was not me, it was you. You did all the work. But in that, my first tasting that I went to, there were five women, and they weren't tasting. They were in the middle of the room in their <laughs> color-coordinated suits, not tasting. There were no women. I was the only other person of color besides another man. He didn't look at me. He didn't speak to me, he didn't acknowledge me. And I stood there thinking, what the hell? Do I really wanna do this? 
You know, I was uncomfortable. I'd never been made to feel that way because my parents, my father especially, you go out and you can do anything you want to do. There are no barriers. There are no boundaries. And I was presented with what I thought was a boundary and a barrier. I don't feel that way so much anymore because as I get uncomfortable, I push through. I speak up. But the wonderful thing is that I've had mentors that saw something in me and said, come on, and let's develop this. And that's been done. And that's what I continue to do. And when I see young people, men, women, I take them and I pull them aside. And whether I say I'm going to mentor you or not, there's just something instinctively that just takes over. And that's what happens. I had a young man come and see me earlier this week. And um, at a previous restaurant, he'd worked for me as a busser. And when I came to One Market to work, he came probably three years after and said, you know, I really, really want to work with you. I, I want to be here. But because he didn't have quite enough experience, they said, okay, well, you can start as a bar back. Young white kid, bar back. What do we usually see in our community within restaurants? Bar backs are usually Latin. That's what's usually back there. So it was awkward for him, but he pushed and he persevered. He became a waiter. When he said, I want more, I said, okay, what more would you like? I took him under my wing. We tasted together. He left. He found a job working at, um, it's Robert's uh, store. It's a wine shop. Did that part-time came back to me this past week. He's now the wine director at Lijo Lijo, and he's been there for three years, and he looked at me and he said, everyone's come to see me but you. The person that I want to come and see me is you, and you have not been in yet. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, you know, I get tunnel vision. I get blinders on sometimes because I'm working. I can do that because there's just me. I am single, I do not have a partner, and I do not have children. And I hear everyone talk about being able to have a family and to work. And for me, being who I am, I know that if I had had all of that, I wouldn't be sitting here where I am today as a woman and a woman of color, still pushing through, forever learning and changing. But it was so hard for me to listen to this young man because he started crying when he was talking to me in the middle of the bar on Tuesday. <laughs> and I'm looking at him, he's like, you just don't understand. I wouldn't be where I am today if you had not taken me under your wing and given me encouragement. And I'm standing there and I got my contact lenses on, I got my blue mascara on, and I'm like, shit. <sighs> and I could just feel it welling up in my throat, and I'm like, Tonya, okay, count to three, don't cry. Please don't start crying right now. And I found myself giving him the same talk that Loretta had given me. It wasn't me, it was you. 
you did all the work. But I say that to all of the people that come into my midst that I give advice to. You've done all the work. You took that stand, and you've done this. As I move forward in my career, um, I have been at One Market, it'll be 11 years um, in September. As I look back on my career within restaurants, it's closer to 30 than not. And, and I look at myself as a woman of my age, and I will say that, where do I go next? What do I do next? Can I continue as I am and open myself up to other possibilities as I am where I am? Can I do that? Yes, I can. And I am going to do that. There is no glass ceiling. There is no glass box. Get rid of the box. <laughs> Thank you. And so our next panelist is Malcolm Hobbs. I keep wanting to call you Malcolm Forbes, so I'm glad I got that right. Um, but he's a research associate at UC Davis, and he's been doing studies on uh, the labor side of the wine industry, so integrating women into vineyard crews. And I think you've been studying some of the sexual harassment issues that they've been uh, yes, dealing right, with. Yeah. Uh, so we have about 10 minutes for you to speak, and then about okay. five minutes for questions. Okay, so I work with uh, Monica Cooper, who's the Napa Viticulture Advisor. Um, so, and we're very happy, first of all, to be telling you about our research finally. Um, so after the last few years, few years, we've been doing a few studies that's looked at uh, how vineyard crews operate. Um, and as part of that, we've been looking at um, the women who, who work in those, in those crews. And I think it's important to remember that um, there's a whole other group of women who work in the wine industry that probably aren't here today. And that's the mostly Mexican immigrant workers. Um, So we started off by charting um, how the gender di diversity of the crews has changed since the year 2000. And what we found is that um, in the last five years, there's a lot more women that have moved into working in the vineyard crews. So before 2013, um, they made up less than 5% of the workforce. And now in the seasonal crew members, so the temporary uh, crew, uh, they make up almost 30%. Um, and they're starting to be employed now as permanent crew members and to get positions as supervisors and, and things like that. So that means that now, five years ago, there was about 1,000 women crew, crew workers working in Napa, and there's now somewhere between two and a half, 3,000. So that's a big influx of women. Um, and so what that shows us is that um, those women have become really, really important as a source of labor, um, especially because there's a huge labor shortage going on at the moment. So they become really, really important um, just for, for economic reasons. So it's really important to make sure that they stay in the industry and that they're encouraged. And if possible, we actually need more women to make up the difference in the, in, in the lack of labor that, that stood out there. Um, but one thing that we did notice is that women are still underrepresented in the specialist job roles, like tractor drivers, um, mechanics, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so. While we were collecting this gender diversity data, we uh, were having the managers, who are primarily men, um, tell us about what it's like having these women come and work on the cruise. And they either said they were the best thing that's ever happened, uh, usually they would say or claim that the women are, are particularly good at certain tasks. Um, but then there was a lot of other men who would say that um, when you put the men and women on the crew together, they, they, it causes a problem. 
and that some some companies are having to segregate their crews and things like that and they weren't blaming the women but they were they obviously saw it as, as some kind of problem so what we did the following year was we did a study looking at how vineyard crews work together as a team so we measured things like uh, how much conflict there is uh, how cohesive the, the crew is um, what's the gender makeup who's in the crew etc and what we found out is that um, Actually, it's a, it's a myth that when there's women on the crew that they cause a problem. And that uh, <laughs> uh, what was uh, happening is that when there was conflict on the crew, it was much more about people just being humans rather than about whether they were a man or a woman. So I think that comes back to what Linda was talking about, that entirely human thing to do is um, these managers and supervisors have problems on their crew. And the first thing was, well, what's, what's different and... You know, why have we suddenly got problems? And the most salient feature was that there were women there. So they zeroed in on that and, th and started to think, well, okay, uh, it's, it's the women, or the women and the men working together. But we found out that probably isn't true. Um, and we did actually find out that there were some benefits of having women. So women were slightly less likely to leave the company in the following six months. So they had a, a slightly less uh, lower turnover rate. So perhaps kind of more reliable. And we think that's because um, the women said they had a, a higher preference for working in the vineyard industry than other types of work that was available to them. So I think most of these women, typically the job options open to them are things like hotel work, cleaning, that kind of thing. But they're actually telling us that they actually would much prefer to be working uh, in vineyard work rather than doing those jobs. Whereas these men, um, they have a much larger... Um, much wider opportunities for work in other industries, so they can go and work in the construction industry, they can do all those other things. Um, so they were more likely to say, okay, well, I might give up this vineyard work and go and work um, on a building site or something like that. Whereas the women, um, surprisingly, would, would rather work in, in the vineyards. For me, that's quite surprising, because when I first came here three years ago, um, I imagined that working in a vineyard was, as a labourer, was... Um, kind of hot, sweaty, dirty work, and you only do it if you really have to. Um, but I think what I found out since being here is that actually vineyard workers, um, and it might be because it's the, the vineyard industry and not other crops, um, they're actually quite happy to do this work, and it's not quite the awful, awful thing that I, I imagined it to be. <laughs> um, so these women are obviously very important. Uh, I just wanted to tell you something about some of the barriers to having them come, come and work in, in a crew. Obviously, I talked about management perceptions. Um, some managers are, are resistant to having them on board. But I also want to say that there's some companies out there that are really, really forward-thinking and are doing um, a lot to encourage uh, these women to, to be promoting things. And I wish I could say, tell you who these companies were, but I'm not allowed to because I'm not allowed to say who's <laughs> been involved with the study. Uh, but some of these, these companies, which are run primarily by men, uh, they are essentially forcing their workers to be, um, their women workers to be allowed to train tractor drivers and become supervisors and etc. So I think they're doing a really good job. Um, and it's also a bit of a disconnect between what the managers think and what the crew, crew members think themselves. So if you actually ask the men and the women crew members what they think about working together, whereas some managers think it's a problem, uh, almost across the board most um, crew members themselves say that they're quite satisfied working together. Um, with, with members of the opposite sex. So I think partly it's, um, you know, it's a perception thing and, and they're actually they're quite happy to work together. Um, 
However, um, obviously there's one um, a very topical barrier at the moment, that's the problem of sexual harassment. So we're currently collecting data, um, looking at the incidence of sexual harassment in Vineyard crews, and also looking at structural factors in the company to try and kind of work out what the risk factors are for it happening, and if there's a way to restructure crews so that women are less vulnerable to it. And this is still in progress, so I don't really know what all the results are, but I've, I've got a, a few statistics which I can, I can quote you. Um, so what we found is we asked women whether they had been sexually harassed in their current job and the kinds of things that had happened. It's, it's like a, a survey, uh, a questionnaire. And we found out that 30% of women say that they're currently being harassed in, in the vineyard crew in some way. Now the most common was um, what we call gender harassment, which is um, things like offensive jokes, uh, horrible gestures, that kind of thing. Um, but we have um, found that 9% uh, of women um, were reporting being subjected to unwanted sexual attention, so touching, uh, effectively stalking, like constantly being asked out on dates and things like that. And we actually um, found that 2% of women are saying they're being sexually coerced at work, so they're being told that things like uh, if they want to be promoted, they have to give sexual favours to the supervisor or, or something like that. So it's obviously uh, clearly a problem. Um, and also, if you ask those women that are being harassed how satisfied they are working with members of the opposite sex, obviously they say that they're not very happy with it. Uh, <laughs> um, so a couple of uh, risk factors I've noticed so far is that 77% of the women being sexually harassed were between 18 and 47. Um, and, oh, sorry, uh, the women who are being harassed uh, were aged between 18 and 47, but 77% of them are under 40, so it's more of a problem with the, with the younger women, um, but by no means is it um, solely a problem for them. And also we found that um, all of the women who have, are suffering the very serious sexual harassment, none of them have any other family members working in the crew. So with these crews, a lot of, a lot of them come as families or someone comes to work in a crew and then they go and find someone else in their family who's looking for work. It's all sort of word of mouth so you end up with often um, several family members working in a crew but and so when women had crew members who were working with them um, they might get the, the remarks and the jokes and things but they none of them had any of the unwanted sexual attention or, um, or the sexual coercion. Whereas women, when they're on their own in teams, seem to be, and without any family members, seem to be particularly vulnerable. Okay, so um, that's just a brief summary. I, I probably haven't talked for long enough. <laughs> but um, I've got lots of details which I, I could tell you if you're interested. So I think probably what's best is if you want to know more, you, you, can, you can ask me. I just want to say one more thing, and this is a shameless advert. Um, but... Um, I know a lot of you obviously work in uh, vineyard companies and perhaps are owners and things and managers. Um, and we want these studies to be ongoing next year and, and a few more years into the future. And we're always looking for companies to help us uh, come and study their vineyard crews. So um, if any of you are willing to do that, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards or you can, you can email me or something like that. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Malcolm. That, that number is really scary. I can't believe thirty percent of women are feel harassed. Yeah, in the I, I think crew. there was um, 
a study in 2010 that looked at um, vineyard crews in the whole of California, and they found that 80% of women agreements had said they'd been sexually harassed at, at some point. Um, we asked a slightly different question, but it's still quite scary that it's 30% being harassed actually at this moment. Oh, currently. And this is data from 2018, so it's going on at the moment. Yeah. We need to have a whole other batonage event for the vineyard crews, well, the managers and whatnot. Um, so anyways, now I guess we have, uh, Sophie has the time for us. Oh, there she is. We have five minutes left. Uh, so we have five minutes for questions. I see there's already one in the back. Oh, uh, yeah, it's uh, mbh, sorry, mbhobs at ucdavis.edu. And if you don't get that, you can always email Stevie and get Malcolm's contact info. Email info at batonageforum.com. We like anybody's contact information. Did you hear that email? Info at batonageforum. Info at batonageforum.com. So... Okay, perfect. It's on the website, too. Any other questions? Uh, over here. So the seasonal crew are around about 25-30% now. Uh, permanent crew, which is kind of a promotion, it's now about 20%, so it's catching up. Um, and five years ago, less than 5% of women were crew supervisors, but now that's gone up to 10%. Um, I found one female mechanic in the hold of Napa, Napa uh, <laughs> and almost none of them are, are irrigators or tractor drivers. Um, but one company that we studied this year... Um, they, he, he basically told his lower-level managers that they had to have uh, female tractor drivers, and they now have one female tractor driver, and they're planning on um, um, training more. As to, I don't know what, what they face in terms of sexual harassment, because what we've done as a survey, we haven't really done a full interview, um, but that's something we'd like to do next. Um, but what I think is that there's definitely a perception amongst um, the supervisors and managers that the women don't actually want these roles, that they don't want to be um, tractor drivers and mechanics. And um, so I think it, it's take, it takes a manager who's forward thinking to actually kind of force that to happen because they just kind of assume that the women don't want to don't do these extra skills and so they don't even bother asking them, I think, sometimes. Um, that's anyway the impression I got from talking to them. But, uh, I think that becomes a vicious circle in a lot of ways if, any of you have been following um, Carrie Gracie at the BBC and her fight for equal pay? I've been reading a lot about that, and part of um, part of the argument on that companies often offer is women haven't they don't want these jobs they haven't asked for these jobs in higher roles, um, and it becomes this this problem where if there's a pay disparity between a woman and her let's say her husband and then one of them wants to work part-time when they have children, the woman who's making less money is much more likely to be the one who works part-time, and then she's making even less money than her male partner, and also potentially disadvantaging herself further down 
the line. So part of it is is whether workplaces allow women to have flexibility in ways that's not going to set them back. Um, and I, but I think some of it is also on us to figure out ways that we can we can make sure we're still staying sharp while also still demanding what we need for our lives. Question over here with the hat. Um, I think it, I mean, I haven't collected the data on this personally, but from what I've read and talking to other researchers, it's entirely driven by the, the lack of male migrant workers coming to California. And obviously part of that is to do with immigration policies and, and the border, but mainly I'm told that it's mainly because the economic situation in Mexico has actually got better. And so what happens is, like in America, I guess, and, and where I come from in England, once you start to have other opportunities and the population becomes wealthier, the first thing they give up is farm work. So there's a lot more opportunity in Mexico for these farm workers to stay at home and earn a good wage. Um, so they're choosing to do that, so they're not coming up here. And the people who are already here, um, their children aren't choosing to go into farm work because they're trying to get them better opportunities, so they're going, trying to get them to go to college and have uh, other types of work. Um, so I think what's happened is literally there's just been a huge vacuum in the labour pool. And, you know, there's, there's three things you can do when faced with that. You can try and mechanise everything and not have any workers. You can try and find workers from a different country, which hasn't happened yet. Um, or you can use the women who are already here and want to do this work. So they, they just come in and, and fill, fill in the gap, basically. Thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we don't have time for any more questions, but we do have the happy hour later and lunch, so you can ask all the questions you'd like.